The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I hope you are uh, enjoying uh, this Advent season. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, This is our favorite time of year at at our house for lots of different reasons. And so um, I I hope that you all are... um, experiencing joy and time together. I know it's a busy season for a lot of people. Um, Our girls really wish that school was out uh, three weeks ago, but we're gonna press forward. Uh, They have this weird thing at their schools, right? So they're in middle school and high school. So they're basically in school this week and then next week they have midterms and finals. One has midterms and has finals. And they're in school for like two hours a day the week after that. So they're already coming, they're ready for the home stretch. Uh, So I know this is a special time for a lot of people. Uh, As we open the scriptures together, let's ask God's blessing. Creator God, we're grateful to be in this place with people who are seeking you and love you. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to speak to us. And God, um, we all have our separate journeys. And and those journeys connect with our family and our friends and this community of faith. And so as we um, open the word today, we'd ask God that your spirit would speak to us. God, that we would leave here having had an encounter with you that continues to mold and shape and transform us into people who represent you well in the world. And particularly, God, in this season of Advent, that we uh, would see you anew and fresh and take the next step on our faith journey that you have called us to. And toward that end, God, I ask that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you, as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been thinking a little bit uh, about all of the Christmases that my family has spent together. My oldest daughter is 15. And for some of you who have been there before, as your kids enter into high school and uh, the ages start to tick up a little bit, you, you begin to ask yourself, these questions like, how many of these do we have left together? Um, Some of you who have really little kids, it feels like forever. I get that, but it's not. Um, And you start to wonder, uh, this is all four of us. I have my wife and our two daughters. Like, and how many, how many more of these do we have? And we've always done Christmas a little bit differently at our house. Um, From very early on, I think after our oldest daughter had her first Christmas, we decided that we didn't want to do the thing where it was like, we were at your parents for Christmas last year, it's my family's turn, or we're going to go see my brother, or we're going to be with the aunt and uncle and all that. We didn't want to negotiate all of those things that families have to negotiate when it comes to the holidays. So after our oldest daughter was born, my wife Rochelle and I decided that we would call our parents and we would tell them the same thing. And here's what it was. We told them, uh, when it comes to Christmas, we are never coming to your house, ever. Don't ask, don't manipulate, don't triangulate in trying to get us there. Um, And we could do this for a couple of reasons. The the main reason uh, is that we have the only grandchildren. My wife, Rochelle, is an only child, and I have an older brother, and he and his wife don't have any children. 
And, and so I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and it's kind of one of those deals where we have stuff to do on Christmas Eve, so we can't really travel and all of that. And we just made the decision very early on uh, that Santa comes to our house. So you can come. The door is open for you all the time. If we need to do something to help you get here, we want you here. You're welcome. But Santa comes to our house, which means that we have spent a lot of Christmases with just the four of us where nobody came. That, that's not most of them, but um, that's been enough of them. So most years, either Rochelle's family comes or my, fam my mom and my brother, they come lots of those years. Um, we've had everybody, both sides of the family. So most of the Christmases, we've had people around, um, but some, it's just been the four of us and, and never really on Christmas Day because my wife was born in Houston. Her mother was born here in Houston, and she's got a lot of extended family that lives here. So at some point in the day on uh, Christmas Day, we will all get together in really exotic locations like Cut and Shoot. And if you've never been to Cut and Shoot, it's exactly what it sounds like. So most of the time we're with family, but a lot of times it's just been the four of us. And through the years, we have established some family traditions that we didn't actually realize, we didn't know that we were establishing when we started them. And so actually at our house, Christmas Day isn't that big of a deal. For us, Christmas Eve is a really big deal. And so this is the way that it's happened for us. On Christmas Eve, we all get dressed up. We sometimes get new clothes. The girls put on uh, their best dresses. And we go out for dinner together. Usually that's early in the evening since so many places are starting to close um, on Christmas Eve. And then we go uh, to worship together as a family. And when that's over, we will go out, depending on the weather, either for coffee or yogurt, frozen yogurt. And in Houston, you never know what the weather's going to be, so you got to leave your options open. And you probably needed um, frozen yogurt when you left the house and maybe coffee by that time of night. And then we come home and everyone puts on their pajamas and we play like a family game together and the girls eventually go to bed and Rochelle and I will sit down and watch the Pope and fall asleep on the couch. That's Christmas Eve. And it's always been that way, regardless of who's with us. And lots of years we've had other people with us. And then the next morning is Christmas morning. And we do Christmas morning really differently than it was when I was a kid. Our girls have never been those kids who got up super early on Christmas to open gifts. Like, you know, you had those kids, some of you had those kids, like 5 o'clock in the morning. They're up, they've never gotten up at 5 o'clock for anything. Like, usually you can't get them someplace by 10. Some of you are late today. It's 11 o'clock. But our girls never did that, which is so different. Then when I was a kid, because me and my brother, we were up as soon as you could possibly realistically be awake, like 4.30, 5 in the morning. I remember one year my mom just got so sick of it. We woke up and we were ready to go and get all of our presents. And we go to our bedroom door and pull on it and it just stops. We can't get out of the room. 
And you can only lock those things from the inside. And so I look out this little crack, and my mom has tied a rope to the door handle of our room, run it across the hall to the doorknob on her bedroom, and like down the hall around the doorknob to the bathroom and then down someplace to the living room. I don't know what she was thinking. Like if there had been a fire, (laughs) if one of us had had to go to the bathroom, I don't know what we were gonna do. I know one thing, we were not gonna leave that room until she was ready for us to leave that room. But my girls aren't like that. They have always slept in on Christmas morning and gotten up pretty much about age-appropriate times to wake up. So for Kate, our 11-year-old, she'll wake up about 7, 7.30. For Malia, our 15-year-old, she will wake up about 1.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and then we will have Christmas brunch. We don't do a big dinner because that's when we go to places like Cut and Shoot. But we will have brunch just with our family. And for us, that means shrimp and grits because I'm from Mississippi and that's just what you do. And sometime after that, usually in the afternoon, we will sit down as a family and we will open gifts together. And we have a particular way of opening gifts, as I'm sure you do. I grew up in a dive-in family where everybody just kind of runs to the tree and just starts ripping paper off. You don't even know what's for who. You just start ripping paper off. And the whole thing lasted about 90 seconds in my family. But that's not the way that we do it. We sit around in a circle and one person picks up a gift and gives it to the other person. And as they open it, we explain why we chose that gift for that person that year. And they go, oh, and they hold it up and they talk about it and it takes forever. (laughs) I think we're still doing it from last year. The rest of my life has been a dream. And that's just how we do it. But through those years, we've had family and we've had other guests join us for, Christmas Eve and for Christmas Day, because we've always just had an open house. Like anybody is welcome at any time. It really is true. Um, As long as you, like, if it's clean, it's clean. If it's not, it's not. You just have to deal with the house, the stage that you get us. And so people have always been with us on Christmas. And so we were thinking this year, because probably my mom's going to come from Atlanta, and we were wondering, who else do we need to have join us on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day this year. And so I didn't think very much about it. We had a couple people, jo- couple people join us a few years ago. And we're driving along in the car a, couple, a few weeks back. And I asked the girls, um, do you think we should have so-and-so come back and be with us on Christmas? And Kate says, no. Which is a strong reaction from her because she is the people person. She always wants people around. And she and I said, Well, well, Catherine, what's the problem? And she goes, and I don't know what it is about people and the hand on the hip thing. Like whenever you gotta make a big point, like it's one of these. And she goes, Dad, she ruined 
Christmas. And whatever she did to ruin Christmas, I totally missed it. So I said, well, what did she do to ruin Christmas? She goes, she talked while we were opening gifts. So apparently for my 11-year-old, it's really easy to ruin Christmas. But have, have you ever in your life felt that way? That there were all of these expectations about Christmas and the way that it was supposed to be and the way it had to be, the way that you imagined it would be, that it felt like sometimes when we get to this season of the year, it's really easy to ruin Christmas. There are all of these unspoken and sometimes not so subtle expectations of what Christmas should be that maybe you have, but maybe it's not you. Maybe it's someone in your life, someone in your orbit for, man, you get around them and it's in the holidays and it's like walking on eggshells because almost anything for them can ruin Christmas. And so we enter this time, this Advent season, where it's really supposed to be about Jesus coming into the world and focusing on the gifts that Jesus brings into the world. And the beginning of the Christian New Year, where, where we look back at our lives and say, these are, these are the ways that I want to emulate Jesus. These are some things that not someone else has put on me, but I feel like I need to move forward in my journey with the Lord. But all of it becomes about these expectations Expectations about where you'll be or how much you're supposed to spend, who you're going to offend, who needs to be treated with care because for some reason around the holidays they just become so fragile or maybe that relationship is fragile already. And that's the way a lot of people experience Advent and Christmas. So a long time ago here at Ecclesia, we decided that we wanted to introduce some different rhythms into the Advent season. And so if you have been around Ecclesia for a long time, you've heard about Advent conspiracy. But if you're, if you're new, you need to know that during this time of year, we focus our attention, both on this campus and our downtown campus, on being the kinds of people who bring into the world the gifts that Jesus intended to bring into the world. So instead of all of the attention that goes on about being consumeristic and about materialism and these unspoken expectations, we've decided that we feel that it is within our power to bring clean water to the world. And so for nearly 20 years, we've taken two offerings during this Advent season, what we've called Advent Conspiracy. And in that second offering, all of the proceeds from that go to living water to build clean water wells. And that's why we do things like last week's art market. And if you were at the art market, you know how wonderful that was. And all the proceeds from that go to living water or turning wine to water, which was scheduled for Friday, but because of the storm, it's been postponed. So it's next Friday. So if you didn't have a ticket, you can still get a ticket. Stephen's going to talk to you about that later. But it's about bringing 
the gifts that God intended to bring. And so during this time of year, we focus our rhythms of life around four things. One is what would it mean for us to worship fully? Chris was here last week and talked with you about that. What would it also mean to give more? Next week, Wayne's going to visit with you about that. What would it mean then, thirdly, to love all? To be the kinds of people who, whoever came into contact with us, that we would extend love. When we saw people on the news, when we saw people suffering, we saw people we didn't like or disagree with, what would it mean to love all? And the thing I want to talk with you about today is what would it look like for us to spend less? And those are our rhythms around Advent, to worship fully, to give more, to love all, and to spend less. And Ecclesia, this isn't something that we just do. It's not just another thing that we do in our rhythm of life at Ecclesia. It is core to who we are. Some of you, like me, grew up in churches where you would have all sorts of things going on all the time, and you maybe had a missionary um, or someone who worked with the urban poor, and they would come around to your church every now and then and give you a little slideshow about what they were doing, and you also had this food pantry over here on the side. So many good things that were happening in so many of the churches where we first experienced God and came to faith. So many wonderful things, but it got to be over time just like another thing that we did. And there was a back room someplace where there was a missions committee and they made decisions about sending money here or this person there. And they had 45 different things that they were doing and they weren't really all in on any one of them. And they, it was great when you can partner with other people and really do something, but it got to be, got to feel like it was just another thing that that church did. Advent Conspiracy is not just another thing that we do at Ecclesia. In more ways than not, it is formative to who we are as a people. It is foundational to who we are. That our partnership with Living Water to bring drinkable water, life-sustaining water, isn't something else that we do. That's who we are. And it's meant a great deal for this community of faith for nearly 20 years. And it's meant a great deal to my family. When our oldest daughter was our only daughter, we were trying to think about how we wanted to walk through Christmas and Advent with her. And so I think it was about her second Christmas. She was born in November, so her first Christmas for us was like just a blur. Like I don't remember anything happening in that first Christmas that she was with us. I think mostly I remember wanting to take a nap, but I don't remember anything else besides that. And so as it was coming up on her um, second Christmas with us, we were really trying to figure out what we wanted this season to look like, what we wanted this holiday season to look like. And that's when at Ecclesia we encountered Advent Conspiracy and we learned about these rhythms and we decided we want our Christmas to be about more than just giving presents. As a matter of fact, when it comes to Christmas, most of us don't give presents. We don't give gifts. Most of us exchange gifts. And what would it be to give the kinds of gifts 
that Jesus came into the world to give. So as we were reading the Gospels, we notice that at Jesus' birthday, when the wise men arrive weeks after he's been born to give Jesus gifts, Jesus gets three gifts. And we determined that we didn't want our children to get more gifts on Jesus' birthday than Jesus got. And we decided that from us, they would only get one gift. This is the point that I remind you. They're the only grandchildren. (laughs) But from us, they would only get one gift. And at the time, um, I was working with another congregation here in Houston and talking with one of our church leaders there about our commitment to do this because we figured if we started it early, um, then it wouldn't seem odd because it's really hard to do once your kids get a little bit older. And as I was speaking with one of the church leaders there, he goes, well, we'll just see how that goes. And I totally get it because we live in a world that is consumed with consumption, for where the undergirding, the underlying principle that we don't even talk about very much is that more is better. And that more is almost always better. And we never ask the question whether or not it is even possible for someone to have two much. And because we don't talk about whether or not it's possible for someone to have too much, we never discuss the prior question either, which is how much is enough for you, for your family, not something that someone else imposes on you, Not some arbitrary standard out there in the world someplace, but how much is enough? So for the last year, I've been trying to think through my next uh, creative project because I actually get bored pretty easily. And and so I've been talking with people about um, my next book idea, which is trying to get after this, how much is enough? And that as Christian people who say that we believe that we are sustained by God, and that God is the one who cares for us and blesses us, that there might be out there somewhere a discernible, for each individual person or family, there might be a discernible enough. And so as I've talked with friends about that and people in the publishing industry, and I talk with my agent about it and what it might look like and how we shape that, they've all come back and said the exact same thing. They said, Christians will never buy it. And I said, well, that's what they said about my last book, and it was an Amazon bestseller, so I'm just going to go with my gut on this one. And the reason I want to go with my gut is because you already know that the good and beautiful life that you crave, that you want, the life that you were made and designed for, you already know that that can't be bought 
or sold. You can't add it to your cart on Amazon. Like th- there, there is no home design store in Waco that can give you what you need. And you know that already. That you want something deeper and more meaningful and lasting. You know in your heart already that the writer of Ecclesiastes was right when he said that all the rivers flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. Now that thing that we're chasing, that we think can be found at the department store or in the car lot or in that neighborhood, that's just a bottomless pit. You know that already. And so I want to invite you this Advent to think about what it looks like for you and your family to spend less. And I want to be careful because when we talk about spending less, the emphasis is really not on the less. The emphasis is on the spending. There's, there's this Hebrew word, telos, and it comes up a lot in the wisdom literature. It's the word we get telescope from. And it's about the end of things, looking toward the end of things, the ultimate destination. And so when you think about your spending over over the next few weeks, what is its ultimate end? Who does it serve? Who does it heal? Who does it hurt? What is the point of all of this? Where is it leading? Because wise people don't look at what's happening as closely as they look at where it's leading. So one of the years that we actually spent the most on Christmas came from trying to spend less, looking at the telos of things. But what it meant for us is that we had to start listening to people. Because my wife is one of those folks who buys Christmas gifts all throughout the year when she hears someone talk about something that they're passionate about whether it's sex trafficking or orphanages. And so maybe she's at a market, like our art market last week, and there are vendors there who are selling things made by women who've escaped sex trafficking. And she says, oh, so-and-so is really invested and interested in that. Let's do that for them. Or maybe there's an orphanage, like some friends of ours run in Tanzania. What, what do the children there need and who in our lives is invested in a deep way over there and you get to the end of the Christmas season and we have found out that we've actually spent more but we weren't worried about spending less we were primarily worried about the way we spend There's a little story in Luke 14, and when people read this story, they always talk about Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, that becomes a big deal. It comes up over and over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. And there's a lot to be talked about there. But when I read this story, it's not that this healing happens on the Sabbath that I find interesting. It's the disease that I find interesting. 
This is the way that Luke tells that story in Luke 14. He says, another Sabbath day came and Jesus was invited to an official's home for a meal. This fellow was a leader of the Pharisees and Jesus was still under close surveillance by them. Jesus noticed a man suffering from a swelling disorder. He questioned the religious scholars and Pharisees. Is it permitted by traditions and the Hebrew scriptures to heal people on the Sabbath or is it forbidden? They didn't reply. Then Jesus healed the man and sent him on his way. So this healing takes place on the Sabbath, but it's the healing of a man who's suffering from a swelling disorder. When you get home and you read this text in your uh, favorite translation that you keep right by your bedside, because I know you read every night and every morning right before you wake up, you'll see that this disease is called dropsy. And dropsy is not a disease just that your clumsy friend has. It's got to do with swelling. If you went to the doctor tomorrow, um, she might say that you have what's called edema. It's when the body swells with water. And it swells so much with water that in the worst cases, your veins can start to leak water. Now, water is a good thing. Water is a necessary thing. You can live longer without food than you can without water. Your body is mostly water. Most of the earth is water. You have to have water to survive. But you can have too much. It is possible to have too much of a good thing. It's possible to have too much of a necessary thing. Now, if you've got edema, you might think, I've got too much water. I need to cut back on my water. That's the problem. Well, if you cut back on your water, that actually makes edema worse. You might want to do some other things, like cut back on your salt. And so lying underneath this little healing of Jesus is the idea that the healing takes place by eliminating the right things in the right way in the right places. It's not just about, well, I'm just not going to have any more of this really good necessary thing. But it is about knowing that a really good necessary thing could be destroying you. And that there's no such thing as a good and beautiful life without limits. And what if the thing that is good and necessary, that drives so much of who we are and what our existence is, what if that thing is the disease that Jesus is trying to heal us from? When our oldest daughter, Malia, was a baby, we had saved for years and years and years for Rochelle to be able to stay at home um, and not have to work, but things don't always work out the way that you want them to. 
And so she needed to have some kind of income. And since she's a social worker, she decided that she would go to work for an adoption agency because she could do home studies at night and write reports at home. And I could be there at night with the baby while she was off working. And so some of you who have been through either the foster care process or the adoption process, you know how a lot of this goes. And your social worker, your caseworker, comes over to your house and they have to do a lot of investigation to make sure your house is safe, that if you're part of a faith community, what that's like, do you have family around, the right support system. And one of the things that a caseworker has to do is discern whether or not you have the financial security to add a member to your household. And she had one particular family She sat down and looked through all of their finances with them, and they were embarrassed. And they weren't embarrassed because they were nervous, they were worried about not being able to provide for a child. They were nervous about how much they spent. Because at that time, when she looked through their books, um, the husband in this family brought home $39,000 a month. Now, I know for some of us, that's not a lot of money. Wait, for some of you, that's not a lot of money. Or that's, that, that might seem normal. But in a world, in a country, where the average household income is between $52,000 a year and $59,000 a year, for most people, that's a lot of money. a month, and they weren't spending it all every month. And where they got embarrassed was as they sat down and went through their finances, and they explained to her that even though they didn't spend it all every month, that they spent so much at Christmas that they spent the first three months of the year every year paying off Christmas. And I just want to raise the flag for us that Jesus, that God might actually care about our spending. That all of our blessings, all of our financial blessings, and in the grand scope of the world, virtually everyone in this room is incredibly blessed. But Jesus cares about what we do with our spending. And this Advent might be Jesus cracking the door of our hearts open to say, this, this is the disease I want to heal you from. That we become swollen by our capacity, by our security, and we become dis associated with and unconcerned with the telos 
the ultimate aim, the ultimate use of our spending. So what if Jesus is calling you in this season to the kind of life rhythm that invites you to spend less over here so that God could do more in the world over here? What if right now the invitation for you is to be healed of this very common, nearly inescapable way of life that we have inherited, passed down generation to generation to generation, that says your ultimate worth, your ultimate value is wrapped up in your earning and spending capacity and ability? What if right now the call on your life is just to spend less, to be more concerned about where those dollars go and who they hurt versus who they help? Whose pockets do they end up in and what good do they serve? Is this, is is my spending capacity tied to the mission of Jesus, to the coming of Jesus into the world that we celebrate at Christmas? Like I mentioned before, during Advent Conspiracy, we have two offerings. We'll have our second here in a moment as we celebrate the Eucharist together. And all of those funds go to building clean water wells around the world. And so much of what we do at Ecclesia during this time is centered on that. So like last week's art market and turning um, wine to water, which will happen this Friday night, um, we're trying to get as many people clean water as possible. And so just a couple of months ago, one of our partners with Living Water, a man named Collins who lives and works uh, for Living Water in Zambia, was with us at Ecclesia at our downtown campus. And uh, Collins loves Ecclesia and knows this church well. He offered the invocation um, at all services when he was here that weekend. And I wanted to share a little bit of his story about what he is doing in Zambia and where uh, these Living Water funds will go. I live in Kafue district, and every time I'm going for work, I pass through the Twatasha school, a school that has children with physical and learning disabilities. When there was a cholera outbreak in our district, I saw that this school was also affected. They couldn't have water. Their well had broken down. And that's how, as living water, we came in and rehabilitated their water point. Soon we discovered that God had bigger plans for the school. I went back and continued to teach them Bible stories even after the well was rehabilitated. The stories of Jesus remind them that they are loved by God. Like the story of the blind beggar who called upon Jesus and said, Jesus, have mercy on me. And people tried to shut him down. These, the children were so excellent and they said, look, 
people sometimes they want to try to stop people that have got disabilities from coming to Jesus. They don't realize that they are also created in the very image of God. Despite all our differences, we are all God's children and we all deserve clean water. Even though the people in the community reject such precious children, we are called to meet their physical and spiritual needs just like Jesus. Our work here is not finished. Soon we hope to build tap stands around the school so that children with disabilities will be able to access them easily. You make all this possible. Because of you, students like Twiggy can pursue their education and they can continue to learn more about God's love for them. By giving to Living Water, you share safe water and the precious gospel of the Lord Jesus with children here in Zambia and around the world. One of my favorite stories um, in the life of Jesus is in Mark 10. And most people recognize it by the title that the translators give it, which is the rich young ruler. And this guy who's apparently fairly wealthy comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a really good question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know all the commands. Go and do those. And the young man says, I've done those. I've kept the law ever since I was a kid. Jesus doesn't dispute it at all. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor and then come follow me. And then Mark tells us that he walked away sad because he had great wealth. And I don't think he walked away sad just because he had great wealth. He walked away sad because no one I know wants to sell all their possessions and give the proceeds to the poor to come follow Jesus. Uh, because if I were to have a booth outside when we're done, it says everybody who's interested in selling all they have and giving the proceeds to the poor to come follow Jesus, meet me outside to sign up, I would be standing out there by myself. I might not even stand out there with myself. But tucked into that story, as Mark is telling it, before Jesus tells this young man this very hard thing, that hardly anyone in the history of the world has ever done. Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. I want to invite you to consider, maybe for some of us the first time ever, that in a culture and world that is just about more, 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 constantly more, that sometimes, 
if Jesus is to be believed, less is loving. That your kids really have enough in a world where too many kids don't have anything. That you really have enough. And that the call on your life, perhaps this Advent, is just to spend less than a world where Americans spend more on ice cream in a year than would cost to give every single human on the planet clean water, that this is a problem that we can fix. And if the people of God don't fix it, no one else will. I'm reminded of the words of institution from 1 Corinthians when Paul tells them why it is that we gather as believers around the table. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus Christ took bread and broke it, giving thanks, saying, This is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, after the meal, he poured the wine, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That the heart of who we are and the center of what we do is a religion of faith, of giving, of passing on to others what has been passed on to us so that the world will be healed and blessed. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you show us how to be people of gift giving, but not just of any gift, Lord, but the gifts that you have come into the world to give. And show us how to live, God, with open hands and open hearts in a world that you have created but is in so many ways broken. God, show us how to be people who bring things together, who heal. Through the power and love of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.